Uh, two weeks ago, I preached on the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, and I preached out of two chapters. I preached two chapters. That is still going to go down in history as the most miraculous thing ever, that I preached two chapters in one sermon, and we still got in, out in time for lunch. Today, I'm at the other end of the spectrum. I'm going to preach on one verse. I think it's probably the, the first time I've ever preached on a single verse here in the time I've been pastor. But I'm going to preach on this verse that I just read, John 3.8. This verse is part of actually a much larger discourse. It's the Nicodemus discourse. This is the famous passage in which Jesus says that we must be born again, right? So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He's kind of uh, afraid that it's going to get out, that he's meeting with Jesus. He's a very prominent Pharisee, but he's a God-fearing man. And he comes to Jesus, and he begins to talk with Jesus. And there's this famous exchange. <clears throat> and in the heart of this, Jesus makes this statement. Now, I've been preaching on the Holy Spirit for all summer, and I just couldn't resist a caboose. Call it a baker's dozen that I'm going to have one more on the Spirit of God uh, before we jump into October. Uh, but this is, in my view, a very, very powerful truth about the nature of the Holy Spirit. And understanding what Jesus is saying here about the Holy Spirit really colors and ties together everything that we've said over the summertime about the nature and the working of the Holy Spirit, His gifts and His ministries in the church. And in this very brief verse, there's a lot of truth. And I want to touch on that truth and, and really kind of touch on kind of two sides to this one coin that's presented here, if you'll bear with me. The first side, the first truth that I see coming out in this passage is the fact that Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit as a, kind of an unknown quantity to us. The Holy Spirit, by His very nature, over against our nature, is mysterious and wild. The Holy Spirit is mysterious and wild, right? He's not tamed. I've spoken about that. I've quoted about that children, the set of children's stories by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And they, they say in there that Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure, Aslan is not a tame lion. He's not a tame, he's not a circus lion. And another thing that's, if you get into those stories, uh, there's, it's, it's about children relating to the Lord. And, and as the, the great lion, the great, the great Christ lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah draws near these children. This happens over and over again in the story. He breathes on them. Just like Jesus breathed on his disciples. He breathes on them. And you know how his breath is described? Wild. The Spirit of God is wild. He's not tamed. He's not predictable. He moves in our midst. We just sang about it today. We pray about it. God, we want to move of your Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moves on his terms and in his time. The Holy Spirit is not somebody that we can put in a cage 
that we can guide, that we can direct, that we can channel. That's another illustration of the Holy Spirit. One of these powerful uh, passages is in Ezekiel chapter 47. It talks about the, the Spirit of God being as a river. But He's a wide river. He's a deep river. He's not, he's not a channel. He can't be put in a wading pool. He's not dead water. He's living water. He's rushing water. I remember reading a, a description of the healing ministry of Catherine Coleman years ago. How many have heard of Catherine Coleman? She was one of the great healing evangelists of the 20th century. And, and, and she came under a lot of criticism. For one thing, she dressed very flamboyantly and spoke very flamboyantly. She was almost theatrical in the way she did things. But she had an unbelievable anointing and a, the power of the Holy Spirit in her life. And people criticized her for a lot of things. They criticized her. One, one thing they criticized her for was something she couldn't help. She was a woman. They criticized her for being a woman, getting up and ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit, saying, you shouldn't have done it. And, and what, there was a man who was interviewing her about her ministry, and he was writing a book on her, and he said, what do you say about this criticism? She said, I'll, I'll tell you what I'll say. She said, the Lord spoke to me by his spirit that he dealt with two men before he dealt with me about being willing to bear the yoke of this ministry about being willing to submit to a point and be yielded to the Spirit of God and not try to control the Spirit of God, but be yielded to the Spirit of God to the point where the Spirit could flow through them and use them in a healing ministry, and they weren't willing to pay the price. She said, I wasn't God's second choice. I was God's third choice. In that same interview, she said, these people, she said, I, I'm, I've got to go out on that stage, and these people expect me to heal them. And she said, I die a thousand deaths. She said, I cannot use the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to use me. This is a ticklish thing. I'm going to tell you straight up, it's a ticklish thing for Pentecostal churches. Because Pentecostal churches, over against churches that don't, uh, either, either flat out they say it, and there are some churches and movements that say it. They say, these gifts have passed away, we're not open to this, thank you very much. Others kind of say, well, you know, we're open to it, but we're not going to encourage it. Well, I want to tell you, when you're talking about the Spirit of God, that amounts to the same thing. And you say, well, yeah, we're not like that. We, we, our doctrine, we believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we encourage the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we believe in these things. There's an irony here. I remember years ago talking to a friend of mine, and he was in another church, a mainline church. No need to say which, but he was in a mainline church. And we were studying together in seminary, and, and he, he said something to me that stunned me. We were out on a walk, and he stunned me, and he said, my church tradition is so dead. Our church services are so cold, are so dead, that there's no allowance at all for the movement of the Spirit of God. I looked at him, like I couldn't believe he was admitting it. I couldn't believe it was coming out of his mouth. But I've thought about those words. I thought long and hard about them. You know, the thing about churches, groups of people or individuals who don't expect the Spirit of God to move, they're just sort of by their assumptions, they're just not open to it. 
the strange thing is, they don't try to control the Spirit of God because they're not even thinking about it. In my experience, and I've been in a lot of Pentecostal churches as a missionary, I had to preach around in a lot of churches, it's Pentecostal churches that very often, ironically, try to set ground rules for the Spirit of God. Maybe somebody's had a bad experience, or, you know, somebody uh, put a little bit too much hot sauce on the taco, or something happened, and, and now they want to lock things down. It's it's so strange, but I've seen it. Pentecostal churches try to control the Spirit of God. Well, I want to tell you, the Holy Spirit of God, by His very nature, is wild. He blows where He wills. He blows where He wills. He is not a short-order chef in a kitchen. He's not... Burger King, have it your way, go through the drive-thru and say, okay, um, Lord, we, you know, we want your presence, don't get us wrong. Um, we're okay with a message in tongues. We want to let you know that, Lord. One message in tongues, an interpretation, but for heaven's sake, not two. Because that's going to, people are going to think we're... Re- all the healings you want, Lord, we're open to all the healings, right? Because that, that saves us money on the medical bills. But um, those words of knowledge, they kind of freak people out, and they're going to start looking for an earpiece in the pastor's ear. Um, so um, not too much of that. So we kind of we try to set the terms for the Lord sometimes. And he's not going to do that. It's just not how he flies. If you think I'm being silly, maybe a little bit um, facetious, there are churches that lay down precisely those rules. This church service is only going to go this long. These things are going to be locked down. We're not going to allow for these things. This type of service is for this type of thing. Even though they're a Pentecostal church, and they, they, they have it in their doctrine, they say, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we're going to allow that maybe in small groups, but we're not going to allow that. They flat out say it. The Holy Spirit is wild. He's not going to be harnessed. He's not going to be chained. He's not going to be limited. And the thing about that nature that he has of being wild, of being untamed, of being mysterious, it always provokes one of two reactions in people. One reaction for people who are yielded and hungry to God is a fascination and a wonder. It's this sort of awe, but awe that draws, not awe that repels. I want to tell you, I'm just something out of my experience. I was in high school. I was in my last year of high school, and it was a a break of some sort. I I forget whether it was a break during the year, like spring break, or it was over the summer. But my sister was just graduating from Notre Dame. She She graduated in May of 1982, and I was going in as a freshman the following fall. So we missed each other by three months. 
And when she was at Notre Dame, some charismatic nuns laid hands on her and she got baptized in the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. And so she talked to me about it. She was just talking to me about it. Her name's Miriam. Miriam was talking to me about speaking in tongues and I, I was fascinated by it. I was just drawn. I said, well, do you feel something or do you get a prompt? Or, you know, she said, oh, no, it's a gift. Once you have it, it's at will. I said, so you could speak in tongues right now. And she said, oh, yeah. And she began to speak in tongues. And there was a feeling that came over me that was entirely new to me. I had never felt it before in my life. But I felt it a lot of times since then. I felt it during worship today. And I feel it right now. The presence of the Spirit of God tingling and burning on my flesh. And I was drawn by it. It was wonder. There's people... With a yielded spirit, with a hungry spirit, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. They want to see the Lord move, and they want to see the Lord move on his terms. And so they just say, Lord, lay it on me. Just, what are you going to do next? I want that. I'm open to that. I'm hungry for that. And then there are people who find that repellent, who can't tolerate the wildness of the Spirit of God. They just, they find it irritating and they want to quench it. They want to quench, Paul says don't quench the Spirit, but there's a lot of Spirit quenching that goes on. You know what I believe that is? I believe that's the same sin that was committed in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, the tempt. The, the desire, the driving desire that, that ultimately hooked Eve and then Adam was a desire to know, a desire to control. G, uh, the Lord gave the tree and said, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it's, I don't want you to touch this. I, 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 this is something you can't control, and this is something I don't want you to know. This is something you've got to trust me about. This is something that must remain a mystery if you're going to remain innocent and you're going to remain in the garden. And you're going to have all this bliss. There's something you've got to recognize. I'm God and you're not. And if you'll guard that mystery, you can have it all. You can have it all. And in the end, the crazy thing is, you'll get the tree too. But right now, I'm saying no. And there's a deep-seated rebellion in the heart of every fallen person where we say, uh-uh, I want to I know now. I want to control now. I want to be in the driver's seat now. It's that thing. God is wild. You know, I haven't had time because it's a very deep study, and I've mentioned it to some of you, but... The book of Revelation is an incredible book in many, many ways. And one of the things that's really remarkable about that book is the numerology in the book. And it's very clear that numbers are important. There's seven lampstands, seven churches, 144,000, there's 24 elders, there's four living creatures. There's all these numbers all throughout the whole thing. But some of this stuff is hiding in plain sight and the way that the numbers in the book work is uh, there is spiritual significance 
attached to certain numbers. So the number three is the number of the divine, the number uh, 12 is the number of the people of God, the number seven is the number of completion, and so on. I drive my family crazy. They were making fun of me the other day about this. Hey, do you know that? You know, I'm, always, I'm always on this. But the names of God are all counted. The name Jesus occurs seven times. The title Christ occurs 14 times. But when you put Jesus Christ together, that occurs three times. Right? So all these things are, are numerologically keyed in Revelation. I could go on and on and on about it. But it's all hiding right in the open. And you can compound these things. So things that, are, that occur 21 times are 3 times 7 or Three times three is nine. Some of that stuff is already going on. How many gifts of the Holy Spirit are there? Miraculous gifts? There are nine gifts. Nine gifts of the Holy Spirit. There are seven motivational gifts, five ministry gifts. All these things are, are keyed. Because this is deep in the Hebrew mind. Guess how many times the word new occurs in the book of Revelation? Nine times. Newness is divine. There's a divinity to it. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of God and His move is like springtime. Is spring new? Or is it old? Well, it's both. Who doesn't get excited at the onset of spring? You get those fresh breezes and oh, the. The flowers come out. It doesn't matter how, whether we're young or old, when springtime comes, there's a newness, there's a freshness to it. There's, a, there's kind of a natural hope that's born in us, and we get excited. And There's another season for fruit and flowers and gardening, if you do those sort of things, and just, you know, uh, new clothes, and there's just a newness about it. But spring is also ancient. The Spirit of God is the same way. There's this wildness to him that we need to embrace and we need to be thankful for. Now the other side of this coin is this. The wind, the spirit blows where he wills. Where he wills. The spirit of God has a will. And the spirit of God's will is guided by the will of the Father. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that's Romans chapter 8. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He has a will. He's guided by a will. So here's the thing about the Spirit of God. He's mysterious, but he's not capricious. He's wondrous, but he's not a train wreck. He's guided by a will. This is one of the greatest ignorances that has come in to the collective thinking of the human family over the years. As humanity has fallen away from God and fallen into the darkness of spiritual ignorance, superstition has come in. And one of these superstitions is that God is capricious. You know, uh, the story of Noah and the flood isn't the only, only way that story is told. The story of the flood in the ancient world. The ancient Babylonians had their version of the flood. It's called the Enuma Elish. In the Enuma Elish, literally, the gods are up in heaven, and they say to each other, it's kind of boring up here. Uh, I got an idea. Let's throw a flood. Not throw a party, 
a flood. Let's have a flood. That sounds like fun. We'll just do that. That's the, that's the ancient, pagan, ignorant mind that the gods are capricious. It's a very superstitious thing in some religions that if, any, if things are going really, really well for you, don't talk about it because it's going to provoke the gods. Has anybody ever heard that one? Like if it's going really well, shh, it's going well, but it's not going that well. You know, like inside, you're like, yes, this is awesome. But you can't say that, really, because the gods might get mad and might consider you've gotten a little bit too much of a good thing and they'll take it away from you. That's this pagan, uh, unconverted, unspiritual view that the gods are capricious, that they just willy-nilly are going to do. That's not the spirit of God. He is not capricious. He's mysterious. He's an unknown quantity. There's a hiddenness about him. But it doesn't mean that he's not guided by a will. Now, this, state, this next statement I'm going to make is a very important one. We can know that will. We can know that will truly, even if we don't know that will fully. I'm going to say that again. We can know the will of God truly, accurately, even if we don't know it fully. So you can walk in the knowledge of the word of God and you can walk in the knowledge that God has provided to you and poured out upon you and you can walk confidently in it even as you're walking in humility and you're saying, I see through a glass darkly, but I do see. I can see, I can walk those steps. It just, I just recognize I don't know it all. I don't see it all. And we can know certain things. And we can align ourselves with that will. And by aligning ourselves with that will, we can step into the river of the flow of the Spirit of God. We can experience his goodness. So I want to talk some high points here, kind of rapid fire, about the will of the Holy Spirit. The will of the Holy Spirit. The first aspect of that will is holiness. Not surprising. The first name of the Spirit of God is holy. It's his outstanding characteristic. We want to walk in holiness. Now, I've, I talked when I, at the beginning of the summer, I talked about the holiness movements that gave birth to Pentecostalism. Holiness movements over 100 years ago. I mean, these are, these are the Christian and Missionary Alliance. These are the Nazarene churches. These are Wesleyan tradition churches. People that are fiercely on fire for holiness. They're seeking sanctification. And, and there are a lot of pros to that. There are a lot of advantages to that. There are some disadvantages as people try to codify it. They try to make it uh, rule-keeping and, you know, sort of... Uh, don't smoke and don't chew and don't go with girls that do type of thing. It's this aversion to worldliness. And, and worldliness was pretty clearly defined. So, so, so the, the sort of holiness is kind of becomes an us and them thing. And I was meditating on this. I mean, we could talk on and on about holiness more than just a few minutes in, in an already uh, developed message here. But I thought of one verse. It's Isaiah 63.10. You don't have to look it up. I'll just tell you what it is. It's, it talks about the wanderings of Israel in the wilderness before they came into the promised land. And it says they grieved his Holy Spirit. The, the, that, that title, Holy Spirit, uh, 
is all over the place in the New Testament, but it doesn't begin in the New Testament. It's first mentioned in the Old Testament, but it's not nearly as common. And this is one of the times that full title is given, Holy Spirit. And the title is given as a description of how God's people related to him. Didn't have anything to do with the world. The world didn't need to be involved. It was how God's people related to him. And this message is hammered over and over and over again all throughout the Old Testament. From the establishment of the law in the Pentateuch. Up through the establishment of the monarchy with Saul and with David. All the way later in the monarchy. God lays it very strongly on his people. Hear me, saints, hear me. Don't treat the holy as if it's common. Don't do it. You can read in the book of Leviticus. God's just freshly minted the Levitical Aaronic priesthood. He's, a, he's, he's established the Levites as that priestly tribe. He's put Aaron at the head of it. He said, Aaron, your sons are going to receive the high priesthood afterwards. I mean, it is, it's Leviticus. It reads like a trip to the meat market. But I want to tell you, it's a book about holiness. That's what Leviticus is really about. It's about the holiness of God. It's about the otherness of God, the exaltedness of God, and how we need to have a trembling respect for that. Not an alienating fear that separates us from God, but a, 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 an inner, sort of an inner loving trembling toward him. In that book, it tells a story right after these events have unfolded, Aaron's two eldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, heirs to the high priesthood of all Israel, took censers, filled them with incense, and lit fire in them, completely out of bounds of God's guidance and God's ordination. We want to say, oh my goodness, if God's going to punish the high priest, it's going to be because they go and do some, you know, terrible pagan debauched thing. They go get drunk, or they go sleep around, or they, they, they get their hands in the till, and they, they let God's money stick to their fingers. No, no, no. They treated what was holy as if it were common. They treated the ministry as if it were a basis for their own ambitions, and God struck them dead on the spot. I say, well, that's, whoa. Now, he didn't, I'm not suggesting he's going to strike anybody dead. We're kind of in a... Um, a graceful dispensation, but those things that happen, they happen as remarkable things to draw our attention to something. There's the story of David bringing the ark up to Jerusalem. He did it wrong. He put it on a cart, should put it on poles. What happens? Oxen stumble. Ark starts teetering back and forth. Uzzah, who's a priest, just like Nadab and Abu, puts out his hand to study the ark. God strikes him dead. A lot of people don't know, Uzzah grew up with the ark in his home. He got overly familiar with it. There's this treating it as if it was a common thing. Uzziah, king of Judah, good king, a lot of bad kings. Anybody ever read through the kings? It gets kind of old. He's evil, he's evil, he's evil. Oh, here's a good one. Oh, he died short, shortly thereafter. But here's another evil one, here's another evil one. They're all bad. Israel is all bad. Judah's mostly bad. There's a few good ones. King Uzziah was a good king. But you know what? He decided one day that he wanted to use the priesthood. He'd, 
He had already been at the top of the heap politically, and now he wanted to be the spiritual guy. And he goes in there, and he did exactly what Nadab and Abihu did. He puts on an ephod like he's a priest. He gets a censer. He puts incense in it, and God strikes him with leprosy. There's this thing about treating that which is holy as if it is common. There's something about maintaining our awe of the Spirit of God, recognizing his otherness, his exaltedness. Because, you know what? When we do that, you know, most of the time, he's not going to deal with us like he dealt with Ananias and Sapphira. He's going to leave us. He's just going to leave us to ourselves. And we don't want that to happen, amen? We want God to trouble us. I want to be troubled by the Lord. If I'm causing trouble to the Lord, I want him to trouble me. I want him to, I want him to convict me. I want him to deal with me. So holiness, that otherness of God, that not treating the Holy Spirit as a means to the end. He will not be used that way. He's not common. He's uncommon. Second thing, worship. Worship. This is John 16, 14, Jesus talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, he will bring me glory. It's the nature of the Spirit of God to glorify the Lord Jesus. It's it's his very nature. Jesus said to the woman at the well, the day is coming when those who worship me, worship the Father, will worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. These are the type of worshipers that the Father is seeking. For all the talk of us seeking God, you know God is seeking us? God is seeking people who will worship in spirit and in truth. You know, I could say a lot about the nature and the the sort of culture of worship and how that culture varies uh, in different cultures. I remember um, my first, I was, I was maybe maybe 30 days in Ecuador. It was, it was early October of, of 1993. We were just in the country, and uh, I took a trip. Uh, we were asked, um, hey, we need all the help we can get. There was another missionary in the central part of the country uh, that, was, that had a medical team coming in, med- medical doctors and dentists. And they needed interpreters, right? Because these are all gringos. They're all coming from the States. They only speak English. And this was a large uh, community. And the crazy thing is the community uh, was mostly Spanish-speaking, but Spanish wasn't even their first language. They were Quechua Indians. And so they spoke Quechua. I want to tell you, this is an incredible, incredible story. Um, In the late 1800s, there were some... Uh, missionaries who were trying to bring Bibles into Ecuador. They're trying to bring Bibles in. And there was a head of the customs agent of the, of the government, and he was deeply, deeply religious, but re- deeply religious in a very negative way. And he was against the Bible coming in. He was against the there's There's old, old teaching in the Catholic Church that only the priests could control the Bible. Only they could control the word of God. And if, you, if the Bible got out, it would cause all sorts of trouble. And so 
he saw stacks of these boxes full of the Bible, and he pointed at those boxes, and he said, Mientras Chimborazo exista, ese libro no entrará en Ecuador. While Chimborazo stands, that book won't come into Ecuador. Chimborazo is the largest mountain in the country. It's right in the middle of the country. It's over 20,000 feet elevation. It's an enormous, huge, snow-capped volcano. While that mountain stands, that book isn't going to come into Ecuador. Well, guess what? Not only did the book come in, but the largest evangelical community in Ecuador lives in the shadow of that mountain. And they're all native Indians. And we went to connect with that group and, and evangelize. And in the evenings... They set up a tent, so all day long I'm translating. I always went with a doctor. I didn't have any problem looking at blood. Now we're doing his extractions all day long. We're just pulling teeth all day long, pulling rotten teeth and interpreting and telling people it's going to hurt. That's, so I know how to say that, you know, really well. And I have a lot of practice. Um, but at night, they set up a tent for an evangelistic crusade to invite all the people who had gotten medical treatment during the day. And uh, my family can testify, these are Kichwa Indians, and they know about three chords. And they have their keyboard set up, and I, I think it's a rule there that there has to be unbelievable distortion in the speakers. I mean, it's just got to be horrific, you know. If there's not horrible, loud distortion, something's wrong, and they've got to go Make it that way. And, um, and they're on their keyboard. That was a great song. Now let's do another song. I'm telling you, it will drive you crazy. And then the ladies start to sing. And they sing everything through their nose. I'm telling you. Uh, well, there's, there's words. It's just all in Quechua. <laughs> there's no, I couldn't even sing it. I couldn't even sing it in my second language. And you think, how in the world? This is about, I'm about ready to jump out of my skin. Then the Spirit of God starts to move. Spirit of God starts to move. People start to get touched. People start to get healed. I want to tell you, the issue, my brothers and sisters, is the glory of God. The glory of God. Where the glory of God is, there is life. Where God is not glorified, full-throated and with a full heart, there is no life. You've got to, I just imagine what would it be for me to live one whole day, dawn to dusk, for the glory of God, entirely for God's glory. What if a church would say, whatever else we're going to do, I abdicate my claim to any glory, to any credit, to any, any turf, God, your glory and your glory alone. 
And in one unified voice, young and old, in tune and out of tune, knowing the song or not knowing the song, praying in tongues and still waiting for it. But what, whoever we are, whatever we are, we're worshiping God. We're lifting up his name and glory. This is the defining mark of every move of the Spirit of God. I could go right down the line of the great and famous revivals through the ages. The great Welsh revival. I've talked about the Welsh revival in the past where people got so, people were so sanctified, they were so completely given over to the Lord and saved they sanctified their speech. They sanctified their tongues. They, they like anybody, got gossip, complete criticism of the ministry, completely out. There, any, any, any foul language out of their mouths. This is the story I told some time ago that the, the coal miners got so sanctified they had to shut down the mines because all the mules were trained to respond to the profanity of the coal miners. And then the coal miners got saved and so sanctified that the mules didn't know what to do. They had to, re, they had to retrain them for two weeks. They say, wow, I want something like that. That's something great. It was a worship and prayer-centered revival. Azusa Street, it happened two years later, 1907, worship-centered. Everything's about worship. The great moves of the Spirit of God. They say, wow, man, can we, you know... Uh, Worship like they do in Africa. I mean, in Africa, they have all sorts of miracles. I mean, why do they have so many miracles? Well, it's because they have to have faith. They don't have doctors, and so, you know, they have to have faith over there for something to happen. The people will worship for two hours before the preacher gets up and preaches for another two hours. I'm telling you, man, there's just, it's an appetite thing. It's a hunger thing. We want to worship him in spirit and in truth. What's truth? What did Jesus say the truth was? He says, your word is truth. Your word is truth. Does the word of God have anything to say about how we worship? A little bit. Anybody read the Psalms? I'm telling you. You read in the Psalms, there's a bunch of crazy Hebrews. Third point. Love. Love. 1 John 4.16 says, God is love. He who abides in love abides in God, in God in him. The spirit of the Lord is the spirit of love. As we flow in love, we're going to be in lockstep with God's will. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. Even if you haven't memorized all nine, you can remember the first one, right? Love. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. You know, I've been in the church 40 years. It's amazing how skilled we've become at speaking Christianese. I mean, we can flat out hate somebody. We can hate their guts. But we've learned to very skillfully cloak that. Well, I don't hate them. I, I love them and I pray for them. But I hate them. 
right? Everything, you know, look, if it walks like a duck, and it quacks like a duck, and it flies like a duck, it's hatred in the church. We got to walk in love. We walk in love, the Spirit of God can flow. And second, I've talked about a lot about these lately, right? Love, unity. That's the next one I want to bring up. Uh, this is the only other passage I want to read. It's a short, I'll read, I'm going to read an entire chapter. It's three verses, so you can all relax. Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. What's that saying? It's saying there is an anointing that's associated with unity. It says it right there. When brothers dwell together in unity, there's an anointing that comes. Why Aaron? Why does it talk about Aaron? Because Aaron's the priest. Aaron's the one who mediates the blessing to God's people. So as the people of God come together, there's this anointing that flows. There's this unity. Paul says, make sure to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's a bond. There's a unity that God can flow through and work through. And the last thing that I want to bring out about the nature of the Spirit of God is mission. Mission. The Holy Spirit is on a mission. Now, people have made a mistake when it comes to the move of the Spirit of God, people say, well, God sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and that's when the Holy Spirit came to earth and rested on his people. Folks, the Holy Spirit is in creation and resting on his people from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So the Holy Spirit is active in, in the midst of his people all through the Old Testament. It's just that he comes in new power. He comes in new manifestation with the birth of of the church. And it's very important to recognize that the age of the church and the age of the spirit are the same age. Is that coincidence? Great man once said, the church exists by mission as a flame exists by burning. The church exists by mission as a flame exists by burning. There is this sending that the spirit of God works. He confirms the gospel, the preaching of the gospel with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. As we're active in sharing, these gifts get stirred. When we make it a habit, God takes us deeper. Not just an encounter, but a lifestyle. That's when we get deeper. He says, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, teaching them to obey, making disciples of, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This making of disciples, that's when the Spirit of God manifests. You know, I want to read a quote and close with this. Whoop, just dropped my paper. Did anybody read the, read the uh, article? There's an article a, few, a couple few days ago in Fox News about the church in Iran. Has anybody, did anybody see that article? The church in Iran. 
The church in Iran is one of the fastest growing churches in the world. The church in Iran is actually exploding in numbers. And the description given, it, there's, a, there's a, Google it, search for it, there's a YouTube uh, posted movie. It's actually a full documentary. It's almost two hours long that talks about uh, the nature of the church in Iran and how um, Islam is dying in Iran, in the Islamic Republic of Iran. You know Iran in the news? Iran, our big terrible enemy, Iran. That the mullahs have put the nail in their own coffin and that the, the mosques are empty but the church is exploding in number, and it's very, very organic. And as they described it, I remembered stories of um, what happened behind the Iron Curtain, whether in Russia or the other Eastern Bloc countries, during these severe times of persecution. Believe it or not, Russia wasn't even the worst place for persecution. It was like Albania, Bul uh, Bulgaria, these other Iron Curtain block countries. It was unbelievable persecution of Christians. And it was just unbelievable. It was very, very dangerous to express any kind of faith at all. Well, these Christians, they would seek God, they would pray, and God, by his Holy Spirit, they I forget having buildings, they couldn't even... They, it was dangerous to even meet together at a re regular schedule in a room in somebody's house. It was dangerous even to do that because people are watching you. And so they would pray. These people are deeply, deeply, profoundly prayerful. And God would speak to three score people and, 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 and say, on this day, at this time, meet in this corner of the subway. And nobody's communicating with each other. And all of a sudden, these Christians, 60 people show up in this corner of the subway. One of them's got the Lord's Supper there. They all pray together. They all worship together. They all take the Lord's Supper together, and they disperse. Well, how do you track that if you're the KGB? That is what's happening in Iran. It's a movement without buildings. It's a movement that's entirely organic. There are no bishops. It's mostly women-driven. And the Spirit of God is absolutely moving at a grassroots level. And one of the Iranian church leaders says this, Disciples forsake the world and cling to Jesus till he comes. Converts don't. Disciples aren't engaged in a culture war. Converts are. Disciples cherish, obey, and share the word of God. Converts don't. Disciples choose Jesus over anything and everything else. Converts don't. Converts run when the fire comes. Disciples don't. How many want to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus? I want to be a disciple. Whatever it costs, whatever it costs me, I want that. I want to be so sensitive to the Spirit of God that when he prompts me, I'll go. When he prompts me, I'll come. When he prompts me, I'll speak. When he prompts me, I'll give it all up. That's what I want. That's what I desire. That's getting in step with the Spirit of God. How many believe that God loves the Iranians more than he loves us? Anybody, anybody believe that? How many think he loves us both just as much as he loves Jesus? Amen. It's the word of God. He loves us as much as he loved Jesus. That's why Jesus went to the cross. 
let's respond to that love. I want to ask Pastor Joseph and the team to come. You bow your heads in prayer. Spirit blows where he wills. Spirit blows where he wills. Spirit blows where he wills. You know, I think about Iran. I think about a place like that. I think about Cuba. I've been to Cuba, ministered to the persecuted Christians there. They're surrounded by not just godlessness, they're surrounded by institutional godlessness. They're surrounded by mandated godliness, godlessness, lawless godlessness that's mandated by the government, signed into legislation. But God is faithful to those who are faithful to him. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be filled. It doesn't matter if nobody else gets it. There might be a hard time. There might be a desert time. But God will bring the thirsty soul through. like us all to stand. And I want, with your own voice, I want you to begin to call on the Holy Spirit of God. I want you to invite His wildness into your life. I want you to invite His untamed and untamable presence into your heart. Use your own words, lift your own voice, lift your hands. God, we repent for setting the bar way too low. We repent for imagining that you were like us. We repent for being so pedestrian in our appetites. God, we ask for your presence. We ask for a move. God, if it has to be a personal river flowing inside of each hungry heart, God, let it flow. Let it flow and let it sweep out of the way all the filth, all the debris, all the flotsam and jetsam that contaminates our spirit, compromises our appetites. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come. Come like a fire. Come like a flood. Blow like the wind. Have mercy, Lord. Have mercy on the hungry but clumsy heart. God, that doesn't have the words to say. It doesn't know how to get a handle on you. You don't have any handle. We ask that you grip us, take a hold of us, fill us, guide us, put your word in our mouth, lead us into deeper waters. In Jesus' name.